Dear God, we've now been studying your Gospel of John for over a year now. And, and throughout that time, we have anticipated this very moment and perhaps one of the, the big reasons why the Gospel was written, that the hour has come. Even as Jesus spoke of it, anticipated it, uh, spoke of it not yet being his hour, but yet now the hour has come. And it is the hour for us, the hour for the greatest event that would change our lives. Thank you for the love that pours out through this hour. Thank you for capturing it through your Holy Spirit, protecting it through the ages so that we have such perfect access to this very hour at this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the title of my sermon is Apprehending God. Now, what's interesting is, is that in both the English and in the, in the Greek, the, the whole idea of seizing someone could be both to arrest them or apprehend them or to comprehend or understand them. And we have a moment where all of this comes together in Jesus in John chapter 18. The Gospel of John opens up with a, a very interesting prologue that mentions not only that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Again, a lot to kind of apprehend about God there. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the NIV 2011, 1970-something uh, 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 NIV, uh, 1984 NIV, actually uh, translated that, that the darkness has not comprehended God. Uh, and... And so there's such majesty, magnitude, and spectrum of wonder. All that goes into God in man, Jesus, and all of that, not for no reason, but because we sinned and we needed a lamp. And who knew that as Jesus walks onto the pages of the Gospel of John, he'd be introduced by the great herald, John the Baptist, Introduced with a cryptic saying to them and to us, Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or takes away the sin of Ed Anton, takes away the sin of Rodolfo Sejas III. Right? That, that th this is who has now walked on the scene. That's the opening pages of John's Gospel. And now throughout this gospel, there will be moments that are pivotal. For example, in the first miracle, turning water into wine. And as he's asked to do so by Mary, his mother, he says to her again, something that would be cryptic to them and, and even to us without hindsight. No, my hour has not yet come. So what hour? What hour are you talking about? A little later on, he has a, an interaction with a, another astounding woman in the, in the gospel. And it's the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And she begins to ask him questions, maybe to get him off of the fact that she had five husbands and was living with a guy. But anyway, she's asking him questions. And he says to her, you know what? 
The hour will come when you won't worry about all these things that you're trying to distract me with. The hour will come when people will seek God in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of seekers that God is looking for. A little later on, Jesus does something else very provocative. In the very next chapter, he heals a man on the Sabbath at the pool of Bethesda. And there in Jerusalem is this healing under the watchful eye of the critical gatekeepers of all Judaism. And they bring him to task on that. And, and yet, as they're about to arrest him, he, he again recognizes that my hour has not yet come. So you know what? No one's laying a hand on me just yet. In John chapter 7, again, he's in Jerusalem, this time for a different feast. And in, in this festival of water and lights, as he's there for, for, for it, he, he uh, proclaims who he is. And, and in the midst of all of that, he, he says to them all that my hour, my hour, when it comes, when it comes, it will come with glory. This progresses all the way through the Gospels until we get to John 12. Again, it's a, a refrain that weaves its way through brilliantly by John, the writer. John, the Capernaum fisherman, who is who's able to craft so wonderful a tale that, that keeps us on edge as we read it all the way through. And then in John 12, as he makes his way into the last days of his life, he has a prayer before God. And then God answers him in the hearing of the people. And they thought that it was sounded like thunder coming at them because here are humans having an interaction with the divine as the divine voice thunders from heaven, not realizing that they are having an interaction with the divine in Jesus himself. But, but Jesus says, what shall I do? Shall I pray that the father will deliver me from this hour? No, no, no. It is for this hour. And for this people that I have come, no, don't take me from this hour, but in this hour, let me glorify you. And after having said that in prayer, the voice thunders at him saying, you have glorified it and you will glorify it. And now the hour itself is here. The hour when all of the events are set into motion that are irreversible as Jesus heads to the cross itself. Verse, eight, uh, verse 1 of chapter 18. When he finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. This is the only gospel that identifies Gethsemane as a garden, by the way, as a, an orchard. Orchard Grove. And now Jesus, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and from the Pharisees. Now, this 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 um, word here saying that he he was um, kind of showing the way to a detachment of soldiers if you take a little deeper dive into what is being said there in this detachment of, of, of soldiers, the, the word that is used by John is not a word that would refer to a bunch of temple guards or those dispatched from Annas or Caiaphas from the high priesthood. 
This is a word unmistakably technical that refers to a, a full on cohort of a Roman legion. One tenth of a Roman legion, somewhere between 600 and a thousand men. If it is indeed a thousand men, then it would be 760 uh, foot soldiers and 240 cavalry. That's what's coming down from Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley and now making its way up this mass of Roman might, as well as all of the officials of the Sanhedrin itself, the official body of, of, of Jewish leadership. All of this is now converging in on Jesus praying in the garden that he could take the cup for us. And just as Jesus finishes his prayer, we know from the parallel accounts that it's unmistakable. They're coming with lights, torches, weapons. It says, rise, here they come. Please, don't think that this is just a, a little band of folks that are coming. And, and it's not an unusual thing. By the way, we know in, in Acts 23, when uh, Paul is arrested, that he is arrested by many hundreds. Uh, it's What is it, 430 Roman soldiers that accompany him. Uh, so, so we know that this is not something that would be unusual because in Jerusalem would have been housed the, uh, or the Ferrata Legio, the Iron Legion. Troops that had fought under Mark Antony uh, in, in some of the great battles. They had been stationed up by uh, Capernaum and now stationed down in Judea. They would have actually seen many of the events of Jesus's life. And, and now these are the troops that have come together. Okay, so Judas came to the garden guiding a, a cohort or a, a, a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Now, in the original language, this is one of the great I am statements of the Gospel of John. We've talked about them. We've seen them. We've marveled at them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way. Again and again, we've, we've had these amazing pronouncements of Jesus, but this one is similar to the one that he pronounced in John 8, when he just simply says, there is no I am followed by anything. He just says, I am. This would have been unmistakable to any within earshot, whether to the Jews or even to the Romans who had been very accustomed to the ways of the people that they were among there, among the Jews. This was a divine proclamation by Jesus. Ego eimi in the, in the Greek is, is what he said, or the very words that would have been heard by Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, when Moses says, to God appearing to him from the bush. I've got to go back to the people, but who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you, Yahweh. And here is Jesus when they, when they say, is it you? And he just stands before them, Yahweh. Ego eimi, depending on the language. I am, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am or I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
Just reflect on that for one second, please. Picture the mass of Roman might, as well as the arrogance of the, the, the high priest authority, officials all dispatched, all gathered around this little ragamuffin, in, in rags perhaps, carpenter, and these few fishermen and others that are gathered there. And in him saying, I am, that whole collection of intimidation falls to the ground before him. That's a scene. Again, he asked them, and I love the assertiveness of Jesus here, you know, as they're kind of getting back on their feet. He's like, all right, hey, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am, and I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given to me? Then the detachment of soldiers, the cohort with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. And so the hour has begun. Arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. And boy, he didn't know what he was saying, but he was saying quite a bit. My first point is the weight of glory. This is the moment where Jesus is glorified and where he glorifies God. And the word glory, although it's been used, oh my goodness, maybe two dozen times in the last couple pages of what we've read, it all points to this moment where glorification happens. But what is glory and, and what is this doxa glory that the New Testament writes about? How are we to wrap our mind around or how are we to apprehend this big concept of glory? Well, in some cases, glory manifests itself in the idea of just a bursting, beautiful light. The, the, the Shekinah glory of God is, is the way that the Old Testament kind of sometimes portrays this, this light of God. But most often, the idea of glory could best be conveyed by a serious weightiness. That, that if you've been glorified, you have weight among you. What you says has weight. Your presence in the room has weight. Is that me? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> invoking Siri somewhere. But that, that when, when, when something has glory, it moves all the furniture around. It has that kind of, of impact. It has that kind of priority when something has glory. It makes a difference when it enters into any situation, whatever that might be. And it's at this moment where Jesus is being glorified. And in his glory, he is going to allow himself to be, well, let's say revealed just a little bit extra before this detachment, this cohort 
of, of Roman soldiers led by a Kiliarch. This is bigger than a centurion. This is a, a leader of centurions that would have been part of this, this, this arresting force. But Jesus is going to allow the fullness of his glory to be revealed. And Jesus, who is both lamb and lion, Jesus, who is both king of the universe and yet humble servant, all of this is going to come together. This lamb that is having to take the cup, this lamb that is having to bear all of my sins, all of your sins. And yet, while seemingly vulnerable, is in complete control of all events because of the weight of his glory. Again, I love this scene. And, and I thought, man, what would, that, what would that look like if you were there? Just imagine being uh, one of the, the disciples watching this thing unfold as these sure of themselves Jewish leaders surrounded by all of the empire influence of Rome all converge on this little garden with Jesus who has been praying for hours. His prayer has left him with what would be called hypovolemic shock. He would have, he would have lost uh, blood and water. Well, blood just through, through his, his sweat became like uh, drops of blood. But, but he would have been so dehydrated uh, at this point. The hypovolemic shock, sorry, will come later with his blood loss. But he would have been so dehydrated just from praying earnestly about the cup. And, and here he is in this compromised, depleted physical state. But yet... His glory is about to be revealed. It's, it's almost like he gives a little peek at the S on his chest. Just a little bit. And, and the effect it has on the soldiers. I, you know, I, I think of this scene here, right? In, in Black Panther, of the, of the power of glory, the power of weight of, of what it can do. Check this out. And boom. <laughs> right? I mean... And in my mind, that's how this goes down. In my mind, this is how it goes down. How you like me now, Tim? You know, in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a story that perhaps may have informed these men. Elijah was being pursued by the successor of Ahab, Ahaziah. Ahaziah had fallen and couldn't get up. He clapped, didn't do anything. So he said, you know what? Go, go consult the seers of those Baal idols. And he sent soldiers to go do so. As those soldiers were going, Elijah... Stopped the soldiers and said, why is the king of Israel consulting Baal when we have God? Go back and tell him, you're not going to recover. You're going to die like a dog. And so they go back and the king is like, who told you that? And they're like, ah, it's this guy wearing camel hair and a leather belt. And he's like, yeah, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Go get him. And so he sends now a captain of the guards that goes to get Elijah. And Elijah's up on a wall, and this guard comes. This is all in 2 Kings 1, verses, I think, 9 through 15 or so. And, and, and the guard comes, and with him are this company of soldiers. And he comes and he says, Men of God, come down. 
And Elijah, I'm sure, is thinking to himself, why would you call me man of God? None of you think that a prophet of God is a man of God. How dare you? And so Elijah says, you know what? If I am a man of God, I'm not going to come down. But you know what's going to come down? Fire. And as soon as he says it, whoosh, fire comes and consumes them. Ahaziah is not deterred by this. He sends another captain of the guards with another company of men. They come and the scene replays itself one more time. Whoosh. The third captain is sent. Now, this guy is not insane, right? Doing the same thing over and over again. This guy comes up to, uh, to, uh, to, to Elijah and he falls on his knees before saying anything. And on his knees, he's like, Elijah, look, I just spare my life. I don't know how this thing is supposed to work here, but I got sent. I, I appreciate who you are. Just don't kill us too. And, and as the story goes, Elijah, Elijah does go with him. But because some have even said of Jesus was so powerful in Israel, it reminded them of the zeal and the radical edge and the power of Elijah. So I would imagine that this group of men, when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he comes out and he's like, I am. Right? I'm wondering if some of them thought, oh my God, the jig is up, right? And, and he's like, duck, duck, here comes the fire. Like, hit the deck. Like, this dude is way beyond Elijah. I don't know if that's what the case was or just simply the boom. Just the weight of glory and the impact that that has. If any of us in our raw, fleshly, puny, weak state were, were ever to come in contact with even an angel of the Lord. I mean, when it happens in the Bible, it, it, it says that people shook and become like dead men. And hit the ground. Never mind just a little peak of the I am of Jesus. And what that would have done. I love this picture of Jesus. That's here. He is in full control as all of this goes down. It, it, it kind of is reminiscent of when he's going to be before Pilate. It's on the same page of my Bible. Uh, and, and there the Jewish leaders insisted. We have a law. And according to that law. Jesus must die because he claimed to be. The son of God. That's what they say to Pilate. You know what Pilate's response was? When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. That even the Gentiles knew there's something about this guy. And I think even for us, if we are trifling with Jesus, be afraid. Be very afraid. Jesus is not someone for you to dabble with. We're either all in or... Reject him, but don't try to turn him into something other than what he is. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just some wise prophet of old. Jesus is who he is. And my goodness, we either fall and make him Lord or we, we reject him. But God forbid you make up some in-between state. We, when we encounter Jesus on the, on the pages of Scripture and realize His call to us, it should be as if a shockwave goes through us as well. Just as it did through that thousand gathering of men. That we have a, a sweeping fear of the Lord that leaves us astounded and then able to see clearly. 
uh, Samuel Johnson once said, there's nothing that so focuses a man's mind as the prospect of being hanged in the morning. In, in other words, fear is, is a very helpful, powerful thing because it declutters all of the silliness that grips our mind. And for us to read a passage like this and realize, hey, I'm trying to figure out Jesus. I'm trying to figure out whether I really want to kind of go all in on him, give him my life, grow in him, be a disciple. What? What? This is not someone for you to consider. This is someone for you to have everything else decluttered by the boom weight of who he is in our lives. And yeah, I know, but... You know, I've got my reputation at school or, you know, I've also got these competing priorities and there's a lot going on in my in my family and in my workplace. And, you know, just for me to really try to make him Lord of my life. I don't know if that works. What? What? Who are you talking about? This is not whether you're going to commit to following somebody on on Instagram. This is Jesus. Jesus. This is, this is he who created the heavens and the earth with the power of his wisdom and just the word of his mouth. And he humbles himself to be our lamb to come into this scene and in full control. I, I want to read a little bit from a, a commentary. I normally don't read from, from commentaries like this, but uh, this, is, this is really impressive what was, what was written here. Uh, the actors in this death story all seem to be hollow, spineless, weak, or perverted people when they are compared to the unruffled, dying king of Israel. Although they are all willfully directed people, from the traitorous Judas to the misguided Peter of the puny sword and fearful deniers, denials, and to the treacherous chief priest Anna of the mock Jewish trial and to the seemingly helpless yet appointed governor of Rome, Pilate. Throughout this story, Jesus is shown to be completely in control of the events, even though he apparently possessed no earthly political or economic power. Indeed, he stunned Pilate, the symbol of Roman power, by reminding him of the source of his actual power, God. Moreover, the arresting band that possessed the symbols of earthly force were rendered helpless in the face of Jesus's revealed divinity. And it was he who, be, who appeared to be in charge of the arrest, not those who were carrying the weapons of force. And so begins the first clash of empire and Jesus. Empire and devotion to Christ. And for the next few hundred years, the empire will try to beat down these men that Jesus said, please let go, and their followers. There will be a clash between the world and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And to think that some puny sword effort on our part makes any bit of difference in all the world is to be as misguided as Peter is at this very moment. And I, I, there's a book that I, I really, there's a historian, their husband and wife historian team, the Durants. But Will Durant writes this in his uh, series of books, The Story of Civilization. And in chapter three, that chap, uh, I'm sorry, in, in volume three, which is entitled Christ, uh, Caesar and Christ, he writes this at the very end of the story of Rome. And, and this is in the story of civilization. Everything on the Roman Empire 
is laid out. And at the end of the story of the Roman Empire, this is what the historian decides to write. There is no greater, and by the way, he's not a Christian. There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while the enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutally, brutality with hope, and at last, defeating the strongest state that history has ever known. And I love the way he ends the whole drama of Rome. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena and Christ had won. This is our king. This is our Lord. And this is our lamb. And finally, to reflect on this scene, it's not just the weight of glory. It's also the cup of glory. Yes, we have a Jesus who can kind of reveal a bit and bring it. But he's also one in complete control who decides in the soberness of thought as he considers you, I need to drink the cup. See, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus prayed, we know, three different occasions right before they arrived. We know this from, for, from Matthew 26. And he prayed initially, if it's possible for this cup to be taken from me, take it away. Why? Because Jesus wasn't in any way cowardly about the physical butchering that was coming his way. That was not his concern. He was concerned that he, only knowing chastity, righteousness, holiness, purity, was about to be polluted, defiled, and smeared with all of my repulsive sin. And yours as well. And the thought of that was the cause for such anguish. Why such intensity of prayer in the garden? Why such a battle in the garden, not against Roman guards? Why such a battle against Satan, who I'm sure was bringing his, his temptations at this moment? The temptation to call 12,000 angels and let them loose. Why? Because that's how much he hates our sin. That's how repugnant this hour is to Jesus. It's sin. And, and for us to regard sin in any sort of light way, I, I think the worst of it would be even the, an incident of my pride. One incident of my pride, my defensiveness, when maybe asked a, a simple question. And, and, and I defend myself. Why? Because I'm proud and I care about how I look. The very thing, pride, that made the devil the devil. That my pride smeared on Jesus takes him from holy to unholy. Never mind all of the sins of all of the world. Just one is enough for this prayer to go down this way. But yet, as Peter thinks that maybe there's a fleshly way to intervene, he gives cause for a beautiful statement on Jesus's part. And look at it again in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Because in fact, it's Peter's cup. The father rightfully would give it to you, Peter, or to you, Erica, or to you, Mindy. This is your cup. This is your cup in view here. And yet Jesus says, I'm here for your cup. I'm here for your wrath. 
And it is better, even though Caiaphas didn't really know what he was saying, he didn't really apprehend God, it would be better if one man died for all the people. And Jesus says, no, it's for this hour that I have come because I'm here to take your cup. And in doing so, I'm going to take your sin. But why? Why does he also have to pray? Not just because he hates the sin, but why does he keep praying? Keep praying until he's resolved. You know why? Because he loves you, Erica. He loves you, Mindy, that much more. That's why this hour has come together. He loves you enough to be your lamb. All of your pride, your concern for reputation, all of your distractions, all of your petty desires, all of your trusting in money rather than God, all of this he's taking now. All our lusts, all our lies, all that turns us into something so toxic that would be deserving of a cup bubbling over of wrath that would be ours. But because of this scene, Jesus takes the cup from you. This week, the final charge, reflect on the cup that would have been given to you. Apprehend God. Apprehend God's love. Comprehend God's love for you so that you can tell it clearly to someone this week. This is a year of gratitude and generosity. Let this contemplation not end until the result is nothing less than gratitude and generosity. That we give ourselves away. That we are gushing with the love of God and sharing it with any that would want to know. This glory, this God, this Jesus, this Lamb is ours. And He loves us. And everyone needs to know.